This is Dr. Laura Gouge, and you are listening to The Practice Sessions, the podcast where we combine practical advice with powerful inspiration to support you in creating the practice of your dreams. Hi, everyone. Today, we have a special solo interview with our guest, Dr. Angela Carter, who's being interviewed by Heidi Moss, who is currently finishing her third year at NUNM. Dr. Carter is the co-founder of the Equi Institute and specializes in providing primary and gender-affirming care for the transgender and queer community here in Portland, Oregon. Dr. Carter shares about their journey in medicine, doing advocacy work, the long process of creating a nonprofit model in medicine, and also shares about some really cool research projects that they're currently involved in. We recorded this interview on a rainy Friday night over several glasses of wine at Dr. Carter's house, and I hope that you enjoy the multitude of pearls and information that Dr. Carter uh, provides in this interview. For show notes and more information, you can visit our website, www.thepracticesessionspodcast.com. Hi, Angela. Thanks for doing the interview with us today. Um, So I had the opportunity to preceptor with you this summer and got to learn a little bit about what you do. Can you tell our listeners about your practice? Of course. Um, I have a clinic in the Portland Q Center called Sacred Vessel Medicine uh, currently. It will be transferring to the Equi Institute once we have our 501c3, which we honestly should have had this past Sunday. Um, And we do primary care, primarily, for the transgender and queer community of Portland and the state, really, and also Washington. We're one of very few clinics that offer primary care to the transgender community with a culturally sensitive lens. We offer primary care, sexual health and wellness, pap smears, uh, STI testing, hormone therapy, uh, massage at the clinic, acupuncture, uh, chiropractic, not chiropractic, naturopathic adjustments, and counseling as well. The clinic has been in operation at the Q Center since 2016, and uh, Prior to that, I had the clinic just myself, no other providers, uh, since 2012. What were you doing before you started your clinic? So I started Sacred Vessel in 2012, a year after I graduated from medical school. At that time, I was in my externship for midwifery. I was also learning how to be a midwife, working with Mary Grabowska, who is an ND. Uh, licensed acupuncturist and midwife. I did a bunch of births with her and some other providers over about a two-year period to finish my training and then launched my private practice. And initially, it was a practice that was for everyone. I was doing pregnancy and birth. I was doing a lot of pediatrics. I was doing care for my community, the queer and trans community and um, just sort of general primary care. But as time passed, I recognized that there was a very big lack of availability of care for specifically the transgender community. And I recognized that I had that knowledge. I, there wasn't really 
a lot of training in medical school around working with the transgender community. I had to piece together my own education on that a great deal. I went to a lot of conferences, the uh, Philadelphia Transgender Health Conference, the Oakland Transgender Health Summit, the WPATH Conference, which is the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, and I also spent time volunteering at Outside In, which is a clinic in downtown Portland that primarily serves homeless youth, but is open to many different people, and has a specific, had a specific clinic for the transgender community prior to the time that insurance was covering that particular kind of care. I was also volunteering at Mercy and Wisdom Clinic uh, with Dr. Leslie Nicholas, who was my mentor. And when Leslie moved away to Michigan to be closer to family, she gave me her practice and her patient population, and I took over care of all of those folks. So over time, recognizing through seeing these patients and also being a part of this community, I decided that I would focus my practice on serving the queer and trans community, more specifically the trans and gender nonconforming community, because there were so few doctors who were even aware of how to offer appropriate care. So few doctors who saw enough patients to know about the epidemiology of the trans community and what the specific health needs were and what the specific issues that came up for folks were. Um, so I started offering free health care at my private practice to people who did not have insurance coverage. And then in 2015, when the Oregon Health Plan started offering pubertal suppression for transgender youth and hormone therapy for adult transgender patients, I saw a huge influx of people both people who I had been seeing on a volunteer basis and also people who I had not seen before but who had heard about me through my work at Outside In and Mercy and Wisdom. So 2015 really was when my practice exploded because Medicare started covering uh, transgender care. And, and Medicare, just for those listeners that are not in the state of Oregon, Oregon Health Plan is a form of Medicaid. Yes, yes. Oregon Health Plan is Medicaid in the state of Oregon. And Oregon Health Plan, finally, after much prodding, decided that they would cover trans-related health care, including hormone therapy, mental health, uh, gender-affirming surgeries, and a variety of other aspects of care. So in 2015, when I had this huge influx of patients, I was contacted by the Portland Q Center um, they heard about my work, they heard about what I was doing, they had heard about some of the advocacy and activism that I had been doing in the community, and they reached out and said, we would love to have the kind of clinic that you run in the Q Center. Will you join us? And I had been working for several years at that point on beginning a nonprofit to serve the queer and trans community with primary care and that was a perfect opportunity for that to expand. So we moved into the Q Center in February of 2016 in one room. I had um, a receptionist who sat in the hallway 
down the hall and met with people to get them registered and set up. And then I had one office space. And we did that for about, goodness, eight months. And uh, over that time, we I, I took out a mortgage on my house and um, built a clinic within the Q Center. We put in four new treatment rooms. And in August, we expanded into those treatment rooms. And that is when I started working with my resident, Dr. Anna Shapiro. Anna Shapiro joined me in October of 2016 and took up another one of the rooms in the clinic. We also brought on a counselor at that point, um, Leah Gregory, who has been working with us since then. And over the next two and a half years, almost three now, we've expanded a great deal. We've added uh, another doctor, so we have three primary care naturopathic physicians now. We have a massage therapist who does primarily medical massage with a lot of our chronic pain patients. We have uh, a Chinese medicine and acupuncture provider, Lauren Parrish, who works with us full-time as well. We're seeking another doctor currently and another counselor. We may actually have some counseling interns join us shortly. What steps have you taken to transition from a for-profit clinic into a nonprofit clinic? My clinical practice started off very much in the vein of nonprofit. I truly, deeply believe that medicine is not something that should be involved in capitalism. I feel that we should have this as a right, as an as an something that is available to everyone at all times, without regard to financial ability, and. So in my work, I have done a lot of volunteering, you know, at Mercy and Wisdom and at Outside In. I've done a lot of offering of free services to my patients. And as far as the structure of the clinic goes, we've set it up in such a way that it will be relatively easy to streamline it into the nonprofit. Financially, it's been... It's been difficult. I spent a while not having an income. I did the work. I saw the patients. The money came in, but, you know, because financially I was not able to afford to pay myself and my staff, there were periods of time where I did not have an income. At this point, we have brought on enough people that our infrastructure is solid and I can take a salary. But for the first maybe year of the work, I was very much reliant on assistance from my family. So it took time to make the clinic soluble as in, in a nonprofit model. We really started off we really started off with the idea that we would not be making a large profit. And that wasn't the goal. The goal was to provide excellent health care and to improve the health care and the health of the queer and trans community. So definitely, nonprofit work is, is not easy. It's not something to take on lightly. And it takes time to get stable in the structures that are needed to make it operate. The reason that I chose nonprofit was because I knew that there would be very little option for profit in the beginning. So I'm a little bit 
confused and curious as to what a nonprofit clinic is exactly. What does that look like? Does that mean free healthcare to your patients? Um, how does that play out? Well, so, you know, in the beginning, like I said, it was a little bit financially rough, but the goal of a nonprofit is to serve a community and with the nonprofit status, we are able to apply for grant funding through private donors, through public organizations, through organizations like the Oregon Health Plan. Care Oregon, for instance, will offer $10,000 a year to a clinic or organization that they want to support because they're doing good community work. So nonprofit does not necessarily mean no profit. It just means that the intention of the clinic is not to make money. The intention of the clinic is to serve the community. So, you know, Oregon Health Plan, Medicaid in general, tends to pay less for insurance billing than some private insurances. But honestly, they pay more than some private insurances, especially because as naturopaths, Maybe you've seen the information that we get about 60% of what an MD bills. There was a recent paper that was put out by the Oregon Board of Naturopathic Medicine around trans care, or not trans care, I'm sorry, around naturopathic care and um, the amount of money that we get. And there's definitely a big inequity. Yet we're doing the exact same work. So that's a separate piece, but... As far as nonprofit work goes, being a nonprofit allows you to apply for that grant funding to pay the salaries of the doctors, to pay the salaries of the, the staff, to pay the salaries of the people working in the clinic, and also allows for work beyond that. We do clinical work, but we also have multiple programs that we, that we offer to support the community's health in other ways aside from just a doctor-patient relationship. And having a nonprofit status allows for us to seek funding for those programs to improve community health outside of medical visits. So, for instance, we've applied to the Trans Justice Funding Pro Program project, uh, and they have given us several grants at this point to do the work that we're doing within the transgender community offering primary care. I know of many different organizations who are very interested in the work that we're doing and are interested in funding us as soon as we have our 501c3, hopefully within the next month. Uh, do you just have to apply for the 501c3? What does that entail? It is a process. So there's about a 35-page application that one fills out um, for, for nonprofit status with the IRS. And that is then submitted to the IRS. And within six months, they are supposedly responsive and will give you financial status as a nonprofit. And in our case, it's a little bit longer because they haven't assigned us yet. We're still struggling. We're not sure if it is just random happenstance or if it has something to do with the fact that we are an organization serving the trans community and there may be some discriminatory practices happening. But are you the, are you, just sorry to interrupt, no. but are you the only clinic in the country doing exactly what you're doing as, an, as a naturopathic clinic? Or As far as I know, we are the only clinic that is queer-run, queer-organized, 
We have all queer and trans physicians. And we are focused on trauma-informed care and cultural competency and awareness and health at every size. And, you know, we, we really work to meet people where they're at, which is, you know, what naturopaths do in general. We are all about meeting people where they are and helping them to make the steps they need to do to, to change their lives for the better for health. And so very much in a naturopathic philosophy, that is what we're doing. And I think that we're the only clinic, as far as I've ever seen, that is doing the kind of work that we're doing. So you really feel like you've brought your naturopathic philosophy into the model that you've created um, in your clinic? Very much so. So, you know, naturopathic medicine is a theory is a philosophy. It doesn't have to do with the fact that you use plants for medicine. It doesn't have to do with the fact that you use homeopathy. It's the idea that you treat the root cause of the issue. It's the idea that you treat the entire patient and you don't isolate to one specific aspect. In my practice, I do end up having to use a lot of pharmaceutical drugs because my patients are deeply impoverished and oftentimes they cannot afford to pay for nutraceuticals that will help them. They, they can't even afford to pay for food to improve their diet. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of finagling and legwork and figuring about how we can improve their health naturopathically while also using the resources that they have available. You know, maybe all they can afford is metformin because they can't pay for berberine, but we go out on herb walks during the visit and I show them where the berberous plants are, where the Oregon grape plants are, how to harvest them, how to make them into tinctures, how to use them so that they can take that information and go rogue harvesting in their neighborhood and find the herbs that they need. Teaching them to fish. Teaching them to fish, basically. So yes, I provide pharmaceuticals for sure, which some might say is not naturopathic, but I say is because it's working with people with what they have available to them and offering them as many tools as possible. You know, in a, in a, in a situation where I'm sitting with a patient, I'll sit down and say, you have diabetes. This is what we could do to treat it naturopathically. Here are all the options. This is what we can do to treat it allopathically. Here are all the options. I know you don't have a lot of money and I want to optimize your care. What do you think you are able to afford per month for supplements? And then we'll fill in the rest with the pharmaceuticals and talk about how you can go to the food banks and start a community garden and do trade with friends for more nutritious food and do trade with friends for herbs and get the things that you need even though your income is very limited. So you've been on the path of activism since you were a teenager. That's something that I know about you. Yes. How, can you walk me through your journey to naturopathic medicine through activism? Is that something that you had in mind um, as you wanted, like became a naturopath or looked at naturopathic medicine? Did you see it as a, as a place to uh, further your activism? Yes, definitely. Uh, my interest in being a healer started probably about age seven. My, my interest in plants as medicine 
was really big when I was a kid. And my mother, being the wonderful person she was, was very nurturing of that and found me uh, a person I call my witch mama, Catherine Mm -hmm. Abbey Rich. She's an herbalist in the Bay Area, and she was uh, teaching herbal classes and basically took me on as a mentee and trained me in herbal medicine and nutrition and a variety of other naturopathic modalities, I was I was fascinated and in love with it. Uh, and I continued to stir, study herbal medicine throughout my teens, into my 20s. So that that's always been a really big piece of my work. The ability to me to go outside and pick your medicine, to find it for free, to have a relationship with the plant and understand the energetics of the plant and to integrate not just the phytochemicals, but the, the energetic medicine of the plant was, was really moving to me. Um, I, I, I realized that I was queer probably when I was 12. Um, and over time came to recognize the systematic inequities that queer folks faced in general in our culture and decided that I wanted to help as much as I could. I joined Lyric, the Lavender Youth Recreation and Information Center in San Francisco when I was 16 as a a peer counselor, got trained there for that and worked with them for a while. And then I moved to Seattle from the Bay Area when I was 18 and started working in queer community there trying to help in any way that I could. Um, I worked with Q Patrol, which is an organization that patrols the streets uh, and works to improve safety and walks people home, um, helps people find resources that they need. I worked with the Queer Resource Center at the schools that I went to while in undergrad trying to help queer community find more access to resources. Once I got to medical stool, school, medical school, <laughs> not medical stool. <laughs> Once I got to medical school, I joined with the Queers and Allies group that was already present on campus at NUNM um, and took over uh, in my second year the presidency of that organization. And the point of that organization was to improve the knowledge of the medical students and also improve the experience of queer and trans. What did the Queers and Allies group do at the National University of Natural Medicine? Well, initially the group was organized just to bring people together, um, members of the queer and trans community who were medical students. But eventually it transformed into a group that was very focused on activism. So some of the things that we accomplished in the years that I was in school was getting a gender-neutral restroom put into the university, uh, changing the intake paperwork and the intake process in the clinic so that it was more queer and trans-friendly and welcoming. Um, And we also brought in a a lot of speakers, a lot of information to the students and also the faculty. Uh, We brought in information on queer and trans health around dying, around 
working with the trans community with hormone therapy around body health and size around many many different subject matters uh, partially we we worked through grand rounds and partially we worked through um, a program that just brought speakers in at lunchtime during the week so our work focused on advocacy in providing the patients that saw us a better better care and also in providing the doctors who were training more information on working with our community and that continued to follow me I continued to do that work once I I left school I started I I continued my education and I started doing trainings myself for practitioners and organizations once I was in private practice at this point I teach a transgender 101 class that is eight hours long certified by the Oregon Health Association and um, very effective, in my opinion, in conveying information on primary care. I also teach now with the Oregon Surgeon General's, no, not Surgeon General's, the Oregon Attorney General's Sexual Assault Task Force. I work with SANE nurses, that's sexual assault nurse examiners, who work with folks who have been sexually assaulted or are survivors of sexual assault training them how to work specifically with the transgender community, with trans people who are survivors. How has the larger medical community in Portland changed since you um, started this path, since you've been in school, and since you've been teaching um, and doing community trainings in that way? The last 10 years have been pretty critical moments in our medical history in the state of Oregon with pubertal suppression covered by OHP in 2015 and all trans-related care covered in 2015, late 2015, and with the requirement that all private insurances cover trans-related care in 2012, a lot has happened and a lot more coverage is now available to the transgender community. Who implemented that change? Like, who was involved with making those changes and advocating for that patient population? Is that something that you were heavily involved in um, as a doctor, changing those policies? And, um, like, who did that? There are a lot of wonderful people who have done an immense amount of work to make these things happen. Uh, Nola Young, who is the... I'm not sure of their specific title, but they work at Legacy Health Systems to improve trans health care. Uh, Christopher Haman, who's also at Legacy. Amy Penkin at OHSU, who is the uh, program director of the Trans Health Program. Jennifer Burlton of Transactive Gender Center, which is a youth, trans youth oriented organization. There, there, are, there are so many people who have been doing this work and making this happen. Many of us in 2014 and 2015 went to speak to the HERC, the Health, Edu- uh, the Health Evidence Review Committee, which is the organization that controls what Oregon Health Plan covers, um, had a hearing to listen to community members about their feelings around trans care and what should be covered. And probably a good 20 of us showed up to speak 
about the work that we were doing and our our feelings of how important it was to offer this care to prevent suicide and to prevent you know depression, PTSD, anxiety in our community. And we we won. We got the coverage. It was a long period of time that folks were fighting. I came in sort of at the tail end just before the HERC decided to start covering trans-related care. But there, there are so many people. It's been such a, a concerted effort with so many people involved, many of whom are now involved in the Oregon Trans Health Coalition, which is an organization of people who are dedicated to serving the trans community in the state of Oregon and improving health policy and research and clinical care. Have you noticed that other states are trying to emulate the model that has happened here in Oregon as far as trans care? Well, I would say that activists in other states are definitely trying to draw from the work that we've done. I'm not sure exactly how many states cover trans-related care with Medicaid, but I know that it is no more than 20. Um, last check, I think it was, I might have been 17. So out of 50 states, that is not a lot of places that cover trans-related care. And we have a model here that has been just the people in our community coming together, working together to make this happen. It's not something that has happened anywhere else. So a lot of people have contacted me from other states, from Maine, from Minnesota, to find out how we did it and to request the policy that we drafted. A group of us got together to draft the policy that OHP now uses to offer transgender care. They did not take all of our suggestions. We're still lacking facial electrolysis and facial feminization, tracheal shaves, and a number of other very important essential services to reduce dysphoria, but they do cover a great deal of trans-related care at this point because of the work we did. And I feel that the policy is very clear, very robust, and makes a lot of sense. And as much as possible, I try to share it with people whenever they contact me. What advice would you give to a new doctor wanting to give better care to the trans, non-binary, and queer um, population? Well, the first piece I would say is educating yourself about the community. Not, not just about the health needs, but about the actual community, what they face on a daily basis as far as discrimination and, you know, prohibition of, of accessing essential services in our community. There's so much politically that is happening right now. Can we talk about that? We can. What do you have to say about that? <laughs> well, so the, recently the administration put, slipped, slipped apparently a memo around the recognition of transgender people and the move to recognize people only by their birth certificate, not by their gender identity. This, this memo is one of the most psychologically damaging things that has happened in a number of years to our community. Patients come see me on a daily basis and voice their feelings of dread 
and fear of erasure and fear of, of not being able to change their gender marker on their, their documents to reflect who they are. Having, having a gender marker on your license that does not correlate to who you are is not only you know, invisibilizing of a person, it's also dangerous. If someone has an M on their license and you know they are a woman, they present female, they, they have long hair, they have makeup, and if someone takes that license and looks, maybe a bouncer at a bar, maybe someone at the DMV, a policeman or you know what what have you there's a great danger that that person could be harassed misgendered treated poorly um, and possibly even hurt injured or killed because there is so much stigma around gender in this culture there's a lot of folks should we pause my cat's gonna have a hairball <laughs> Okay, so we had to pause for a second because there was definitely a cat hairball happening. So just to sort of pick up where we left off, I'm interested in understanding um, how the administration's efforts to um, define what gender is, how that can affect healthcare on a federal level, or how can it affect uh, healthcare in Oregon, where we've made so many steps forward? Can do they have enough power to really rein it in and and take us back a few steps? So, I can't say that I have all the knowledge to answer that. But what I will say is that there are so many layers in Oregon of policy and law around coverage of trans-related care that it will take a great deal of work to completely erase the work that has been done. I think that Oregon Medicaid, OHP, Oregon Health Plan, will continue to serve the trans community, not just because there's some amorphous idea of it being right, but because they've seen the results in the community, they've seen what offering this kind of care can do for people as far as improvement of their lives and their ability to function, and it will, it will take a lot to repeal that. Federal funding may be cut short for trans care, but the state can still find money elsewhere and I believe that they will still continue to do so long after any federal law may come in place that negates and erases trans people. And can we tie that into your nonprofit model in your clinic once you get a 501c? Is there any sort of oversight federally with that where they can dictate a little bit how you, how you um, spend your time or, or the money that's granted to you or what have you? That's... The beauty of a nonprofit model is that even if insurance is revoked and we no longer can bill insurance, we can still get grant money from private investors, from public organizations to fund the work that we're doing. I mean, before trans care was legally covered in this state, Outside In had a trans clinic once or twice a month where people would come to get their hormone therapy. We volunteered, many of us in the community volunteered to make that happen. 
And if we have to, we will resume that model. But there are many more of us now than there were just five years ago. And I believe that we can make it happen. So I have experience working for nonprofit organizations that generally are funded by a membership base. Is that something that's even possible in a medical clinic setting to have a membership base that, um, that puts money into your clinic? That is a possibility. We've considered membership. And the main reason that we have not gone that route is because most of our patients are very impoverished and cannot even afford a membership. But if insurance was not covering, that would be a very feasible model. Um, there's, there's an organization called the Patient Physician Cooperative that we work with for a lot of patients who don't have insurance. Basically, this is a model where the insurance middle person is cut out and the, the member pays a fee to the organization, receives a certain number of medical visits in return, and also gets benefits like labs covered and low-cost imaging and catastrophic care, reductions of cost on insurance for catastrophic care. So we've sort of outsourced it but we could also integrate it into our clinic and have it be a membership base where people pay a fee monthly to obtain medical care whenever they need it. And that's definitely a viable model if things go down. Just kind of backtracking a little bit to the 101 training program that your clinic offers or that you offer, um, how can people in Oregon or other people willing to travel sign up for that? And what do you offer in those programs? Well, as far as getting into the program, we have a couple of options. We have in-person, which is mostly what we've done so far. It's an eight-hour class. And we are also in the process of developing a webinar, which uh, we will have available online uh, for people to download and watch when when they have the time. The class consists of uh, a Trans 101 culture, language, um, appropriate like front of house clinical work. And then we also discuss hormone therapy, surgeries, mental health, working with youth, sexual and reproductive health, and ethics, as well as case discussions with complex patients to help people sort of process and brainstorm how they might care for some of the people who are in community. You mentioned hormone therapy, and I'm wondering if as part of your training and guiding doctors into overseeing a trans person's health, what are the health issues that can arise from long-term health therapy okay. or excuse me hormone therapy so generally long-term hormone therapy is relatively safe we the biggest the biggest issue with hormone therapy tends to be around blood clotting dynamics estrogen therapy especially taken orally can increase the risk for blood clots because it changes how the liver produces clotting factors. So 
that 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 can be an issue but it rarely is because if people take their hormones at the level that we prescribe and if we monitor their hormone levels we check estrogen we check testosterone and we make sure that they're within physiological range when in physiological range the risk for blood clots is very low very minimal with estrogen it's higher than testosterone but if you maintain an estrogen serum level that is between 1 and 300 nanograms per deciliter the the outcomes are generally very good the only times that I've really seen my patients have blood clots is when they have taken twice the dose or somehow somehow taken too much and had serum levels closer to the 6 to 800 or higher nanograms per deciliter. So it's a concern, but it's not a big one. Then there's there's other concerns you know, the liver has a big impact on hormone, hormone breakdown. And if, if someone has a liver disease, then that can, that can cause problems with hormones. Generally, if someone has elevated liver enzymes, we work to figure out what that is and get it under control. I've never had anyone have liver disease so severe that they couldn't have hormone therapy. I have patients who have hepatitis C and cirrhosis, and they're still able to receive hormone therapy with control of whatever is causing those disorders. So I wasn't sure if you're training when you're in the community or you're, you're doing these training sessions, if you touch on that aspect, like the actual medical aspect of um, treating the trans community or if it's more about trauma care and language oh, it's all about everything it's there's everything there's 101 language trauma-informed care and you know the cultural aspects of working with a community that is marginalized um, but then we also spend several hours talking about managing hormone therapy talking about managing the side effects how they can be mitigated with both allopathic and naturopathic medicine um, and you know just maintaining people as healthy as possible but truly truly hormone therapy is very relatively benign for the impact that it has you give someone the hormone that matches their gender identity and within a few weeks their outlook on life is immediately transformed. It may not be perfect because life happens and, you know, people hit bumps in the road, but just having the right hormone in your body can make the hugest difference in mental health outcomes and in ability to socialize and an ability to leave the house and an ability to, to fulfill one's life goals. If one feels comfortable in one's body, there's just so much more opportunity. So um, how does that change when when there is an incongru incongruence or a gender dysphoria and then their gender that they identify with is affirmed and they move into that space where they are solid within themselves, if you will. How does that change? How is the medical coding actually change Mm. from gender dysphoria 
to like do you still have to use the same code as mm. you're treating this, these patients so unfortunately the dsm is limiting and the icd coding system is limiting there are a number of codes f64.9 is gender dysphoria but within that f64 point blank there are a number of codes that one can use gender dysphoria is the experience of having an incongruence with the assigned gender that one has been given basically one is assigned a gender at birth and as one grows up and comes into themselves they they discover that that gender is not correct gender is a social construct it is an important social construct and one that we lean on very heavily but it is a social construct the innate experience of gender has has very little to do with sex it may in some people correlate their gender may be the same as their sex that is a cisgender person it's not a slur that's just a term meaning that someone is on the same side as their identity their gender matches what was assigned to them at birth no incongruence no incongruence so with a trans person that incongruence is incredibly uncomfortable incredibly painful and as they start taking hormones and obtain gender affirming surgeries that dysphoria may reduce it may flare up in times say for instance someone who has just started hormone therapy and is wanting things to happen faster because they've been waiting for so long to have these changes happen in their body so there may be flares of dysphoria right when hormone therapy starts after a couple of years of hormone therapy if things aren't moving as fast or in the direction that someone wants sometimes before surgeries people have big flares of gender dysphoria but as that dysphoria wears off you can definitely change the code they're they're not ideal i will say that for sure um there's there's codes for transsexualism with homosexuality there's tr codes for transsexualism with heterosexuality so you know you can use that code which is not ideal again what does the sexuality part mean well, that's or the why thing. is that added into it i don't think it. that it's relevant to record that particular piece the dsm is just honestly it's people trying to figure out how to how to codify people who don't need to be codified don't fit into don't the codes fit into their boxes because not all trans people have the dysphoria yes correct lots of folks who are transgender do not experience uh, a discomfort or a feeling of incongruence with their body i am a person who has relatively low levels of dysphoria i am trans i'm non-binary um i took a long time to figure it out but when i finally did i started hormone therapy and it's been truly awesome and i don't feel the need to have surgery to alter my body to make it more comfortable i feel comfortable in my body as it is but the addition of hormone therapy made me feel much more comfortable with the way that my body is so 
uh, there's a spectrum. Some people will want hormone therapy. Some people will not. Some people want surgery. Some people will not. Some people will be completely happy with a name change. It really varies from person to person. And the codes that we use, there's a lack of appropriate coding. The gender dysphoria code is the code that the insurance companies want to see to offer services. So that's the code that we tend to use the most. But other codes are, are also applicable. There, in, before we started covering hormone therapy for trans people with insurance, we would use endocrine disorder NOS, nonspecific endocrine disorder. Basically, the person has the wrong hormones. We're going to put the right hormones in and correct it. So, you know, there's, there's a diversity of possibilities. I have, a, I have a patient who doesn't want the fact that she's trans on her record. She's had her surgeries. She's done her hormones. Her body matches her gender. She's happy with it. And we don't put anything that has to do with trans in there because she doesn't want the stigma. So we use, you know, hypogonadal. She's had her gonads removed and we have to replace her hormones, so we need something. But we don't need to be specific about gender dysphoria because she doesn't have it anymore. So she came to you already um, in a state of well-being as far as her gender goes, and and she just she, needed maintenance. You don't need to use the DSM five coding for gender dysphoria with her. No, because she doesn't. She's have already it. done it. She's, She's already gone it. through it. Yeah. And so she doesn't need that piece taken care of with insurance necessarily. So it gets complicated, it sounds like. It can get complicated. I want to segue a little bit into um, another, a couple other projects that you're working on. I know you have two major longitudinal, longitudinal research studies that you're involved in. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Of course. So I started working with the PRIDE study about a year ago. The PRIDE study is the first longitudinal study, it's all online, that follows the queer and trans community over 10 years. So um, you can go to pridestudy.org and sign up. Basically, it's a series of online questionnaires about all aspects of life, um, social history and spiritual history and family history and medical history, all of these different pieces of our lives that impact our health. And it's, an, it's a, an annual series of questionnaires with other questionnaires put in periodically for people who are appropriate to that questionnaire. And the point is to gather as much health data as possible on our community so that we can know where the, you know, we've had so many blank spots in our research. Research in the queer and trans community has been grossly underfunded in general. Our community has been largely ignored by the federal government, by the, the health organizations that the federal government offers and runs. This is the first one that truly looks at our health from a holistic perspective. And the goal is to create a database of information that many different researchers can draw from uh, in their areas of study to find out more about the queer and trans community's health and to improve it. 
I'm thinking that maybe that those studies could help shape maybe reforming the language of the DSM-5 or policy. I'm um, hoping so, yeah. yes. The other study is the All of Us Research Project. It's uh, another longitudinal study that is hoping to enroll one million Americans. And again, online uh, questionnaires. This one has uh, a little bit of possibility for research into more biological aspects and does do lab draws and sample collections for certain people who agree to that. But again, all online, all voluntary. Um, they send you emails to fill out questionnaires periodically. You can see information about other people who have taken the studies and kind of get a sense of what the population data is about. It's very interesting to look at as a, a participant. Um, I'm a participant as well as promoting the studies. And it's very interesting to see, you know, you are one of this percentage of people who are genderqueer, and you are one of this percentage of people who are on hormones, and you are one of this percentage of people who have these health issues within your community. So they'll just, they'll share this data with the participants, and I, I think it's fascinating if you have any interest in health. But the, the point of these studies, the PRIDE study is hoping to enroll, I believe, 10,000 people over 10 years. All of us is seeking to enroll 1 million. That's a huge amount of people. No studies like this have ever occurred before. And we will have so many opportunities to improve on healthcare with these, with these studies and the information that they provide to us. Excellent. Um, is there any other projects that you're currently working on that you would like to talk about? I am working currently to obtain a research DEA license for Schedule 1 so that I can provide MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. The trans and queer community, because of pervasive social stigma and discrimination, experiences a high level of chronic post-traumatic stress disorder. There's a, there's, there's, there's a lot of pain in the community because of the stigma and the discrimination that they face. The Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies is an organization that has been working for many years to approve through the FDA and the DEA the use of MDMA for psychotherapy treatments. This particular medication is not available currently in the U.S. because it is Schedule One, uh, which basically means that it has no medical purpose according to the DEA. However, the research that has been going on with MDMA since the 70s and the 60s has been incredible. In PTSD treatments, if we see a 5 to 10 percent improvement rate or recovery rate, we are celebrating. There is, there is so few therapies that truly offer remission and recovery from PTSD. There's, there's, there's some therapies that are helpful, you know, EMDR and cognitive behavioral therapy can offer some assistance, um, but 
but the recovery rate is very low. Many people suffer for many years from PTSD and can't live a full life. What we're seeing in the research is that there is a 60 to 80% recovery rate, not just improvement, Mm -hmm. but recovery. People who on the CAPS-5, which is the diagnostic tool that is used to clinically diagnose PTSD, 60 to 80% of folks are no longer experiencing PTSD after their psychotherapeutic sessions. Now, MAPS has a protocol that they follow, which includes three sessions of psychotherapy prior to any initiation of psychopharmacology use, and then a session with MDMA with two therapists, three sessions to integrate and prepare for the next session, and then another session, and then three more sessions to wrap up and integrate all of the information that was provided from those sessions. Now these are sessions that are highly supervised. They last about eight hours, eight to 12 hours. um, And they are truly revolutionary for the people experiencing them. Uh, MDMA is a drug that has a lot of stigma attached to it and a lot of fear because there has been a lot of sensationalism in the media. But if you look at the actual research studies on clinically supported MDMA psychotherapy, the outcomes that are negative are so few and the outcomes that are positive are so many that it, it's, it's been put on the breakthrough drugs list. Basically, basically, the drug is so effective that the FDA is going to be allowing access to it sooner, potentially, than the phase three trials, the human trials, um, will be completed. Right now, MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, is in the beginning. They just launched their phase three trials. Phase three basically means that it is a human trial Uh, not an animal model anymore. They went through phase one, animal models, phase two, the pilot study. Now they're doing phase three, which is multi-site all over the country. And the results from the phase two trials were so astronomically good that they may allow for access to this drug before it is approved by the the DEA to be descheduled or scheduled down to schedule three, if you will. So... There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear around MDMA, around losing one's mind, around losing a connection to self. But that's part of the therapy, honestly. Losing a connection to self is something that many people feel very frightened by, but the actual therapy, the actual treatment, people do kind of lose a sense of self, but they gain a sense of universal self. And that sense of connection to others, to the world, to nature, makes them feel safer in the world, like more connection to self. They, they, can, they can dive into parts of themselves that are terrifying in default world. But with MDMA included, all of those fears tend to fall away. People, the therapist is able to build a better rapport 
with the patient, which allows for a much more rapid progress through the traumatic experiences that someone has experienced to reach a healing place. And I'm sure that there are long-lasting effects with this type of therapy. You, you know, like, it's not like it's something that a patient would come in and do on a weekly basis. No. It is, it is a very targeted and specialized therapy. Um, I don't know very much about the history of MDMA. I'm wondering if you know anything about that, if it was created as a drug for that purpose, if it was created by drug companies... Um, and, and if there was a history previously in the 70s or what have you to using it in therapy. So MDMA was originally synthesized in 1912 in Germany by Merck, the drug company. But it didn't really receive very much attention or focus at all until an American chemist and psychopharmacologist Dr. Alexander Shulgin um, synthesized it in 65 at Dow Chemical Company, and he experimented with it. His, his goal in life is to make tools for research of the mind, and he found this drug and said, wow, this is very effective because it improves rapport with a therapist, it increases empathy, it, it increases feelings of well-being, self-awareness, reduces the fear response in people, and allows for exploration of thoughts and feelings that are often too overwhelming to even look at with the, the default mind. So his research drug made its way to many other organizations around the country and eventually found its way into the hands of Rick Doblin. Rick Doblin became very clear that this was a medication that was crucial and very important for the advancement of psychological health. And in um, 1985, unfortunately, because of a lot of sort of media sensationalism, the drug was outlawed and put on Schedule One. Um, and Rick Doblin decided in 1986 to start MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, with the purpose of creating legalization of MDMA and other psychedelic substances for the purpose of use in mental health assistance. So over many years, with many research studies, um, we have seen great improvement in people with depression and anxiety, PTSD, people with autism who experience anxiety, people who are finding the end of life and have a lot of fear. Um, MDMA and other psychotropic substances can have a big impact on one's ability to cope with and move through these experiences. And we're finding also that these, these effects are persistent. They last at least six months, if not longer, from the time of the session, and they have profound impacts on people's lives. Many people have said that this is one of the single most important events of their entire life and one of the most influential in their path. MAPS offers a training program uh, to train people who are psychotherapists in this, in this kind of therapy. 
And there are many research sites around the country that are offering this kind of therapy to people with PTSD currently in San Francisco, in at Harvard, at at many different locations around the country. And the the goal from MAPS is to have it legalized and descheduled by 2021. So you see this medicine as a great healer for the community that you work for. I do. I have so many patients with severe chronic PTSD because their experience of being misgendered constantly, their experience of losing connection with family and spiritual community and losing jobs and losing housing and just the daily microaggressions that they face it creates a really difficult psychological experience to cope with. My own experience in facilitating psychotherapy with people who are taking psychoactive drugs comes mainly from my work at Burning Man. I've worked there as a medic for the last seven years and sat with many people who are in the midst of an intense psychedelic experience. And in that time, I've been able to work with them and help them look and observe themselves and heal a lot of their pain. So I think that this particular drug is exceptional. And regardless of the social stigma, I think it's incredibly useful. There's a lot of fear, like I said, around it. But that fear is mostly unbased in reality. There's a lot... It's a lot of intensity, but it is a safe intensity. So one thing that's really apparent to me throughout this conversation is that you spend a lot of time really taking care of a lot of other people. How do you balance? Well, let me backtrack. One thing I struggle with as a student is the balance between self-care and family and time and my own passions How do you deal with that, with wearing so many hats in your professional life? Well, my my passion for the work really drives me. And in some ways that's been my 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 lack of good boundaries personally has been difficult. When I was in medical school, I had a very intense mental health episode in my third year and really struggled with mental health through the rest of medical school because I was doing too much because I care so much and I felt like this was absolutely essential work that couldn't be sacrificed regardless of my personal experience. That's been true for me after medical school as well because I see my community suffering and I feel very urgently the need to do this work and continue to improve the health care that's offered to the community. Who supports you? Who supports me? I have a wonderful network of friends. My family supports me. My mother and father are incredibly helpful and supportive. Um, the people that I live with in my house are also very supportive. And I have a network of other providers and advocates for the community that I work with on a regular basis who also are very helpful to me in maintaining my ability to do the work. And, you know, I've, I've had moments of distance from all of those groups 
on a feeling of I'm doing this by myself. Nobody else is able to help me. But more recently, I've recognized that those support groups are invaluable to me and essential. I couldn't do the work that I'm doing without that support. So I've invested more in those communities more recently so that so that I can continue to survive and thrive myself. Facebook, Facebook is terrible. Blah. I have come off of Facebook entirely, very High recently. Five. High five to that. Thank you. <laughs> and that has been one of the most life-changing experiences that I've had in the last 10 years. I have more time and energy for so many things when I'm not looking at the misery of the entire world. With and, no arguing, and arguing, arguing, the arguing, the arguing, the arguing, the arguing. And arguing. <laughs> Facebook social media has its purpose, its time and place, but I was spending two to three hours a day with people who would contact me on Facebook telling me about their difficulties or their medical issues and trying to help them, and I can't do that. No. That was a boundary for me that I had to draw. So it's been a lot about just learning my my ending and where I end and where others begin and accepting that and saying there's so much that I can do I can do a lot but I can't do everything um all of my projects all of my projects are incredibly fulfilling to me I'm not doing anything that feels like well I mean paperwork is annoying but other than that I'm not doing anything that doesn't feel like heart work to me and that really helps me sustain the work. There are times when I have to take a pause and back off, but I can reinvest after I take a moment for introspection. Do you have help staying organized or how do you stay organized with all of this work? <laughs> I am such a disorganized person. I, <laughs> I am truly chaos embodied and I have had to find people to help me, teammates over the last few years, and I, I have discovered a lot of people who are incredibly helpful. Uh, my operations director and co-executive director, Katie Cox, has been a lifesaver to me. She, she has a brain that is very different than mine and incredibly symbiotic. She runs the business for me. She organizes all aspects of what we do and created a framework for me so that I could continue to do the work that I do. I am not an organizer. I am not a, a, a creator of structures. I am not a creator of systems. And that her, her addition to my work was absolutely essential. I would not have been able to do what I'm doing now if it wasn't for her help. And for the help of many other people in community who have said, hey, what about this? Hey, what about that? When I was just lost and floundering and, and, and unable to move forward because I just didn't have the knowledge. So... You know, humility and asking for help is really important in all of the things that we do. So I have a kind of cheesy and predictable question for you. Is there, and I'm interested in this because you've, you've gone through so many cycles of things and maybe some things have been really hard and you've gone through personal change, but would you change anything? About, what would you change about your journey or how you've... Um, started your business as a nonprofit or even just even your practice? So when I was at NUNM, I had a teacher named Dick Tom 
who was very clear that one should never start a nonprofit before at least five years out of school. And I was very, very much chomping at the bit to debate him on that. But there was some value in that advisement. I think the first five years of practice are really about learning how to be a doctor, learning about the clinical skills and the interpersonal skills and learning about the systems that you exist in, in the city that you live in, where people can get resources, where they can get health insurance, where they can find community. Those are all really important pieces. And the structure of a nonprofit is deeply complex and messy and takes a lot of work to develop. I worked on doing that prior to my five years and I'm grateful for it because here I am with an awesome experience, an awesome clinic and amazing people to work with. But had I waited until five years to start working on the nonprofit, I think that I may have had more time to focus on the clinical aspects of my work. Not to say that I don't feel that I have developed my clinical aspects, but it would have been easier trying to juggle starting a nonprofit and starting a practice in general and learning all the ropes is a lot. So, you know, I'm, I'm very, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm somewhat impetuous because I just jumped in, jumped in and did it. <laughs> and I, I don't think that I would change anything that I did because I've learned so much from the way that I did things. Trial by fire is the way that I learned best. But I think that the first five years of practice really truly are about if you don't have a residency or if you do, developing who you are as a doctor and how you want to practice. And I think it deserves those five years of time to really, to really figure out. Um, the nonprofit work was extra work on top of what I was already doing and was exhausting, you know. It's a lot of work to build a nonprofit. It's a lot of work to build all of the pieces that, that we have here. But I feel good about it, and I feel like I can start, or I've already started, with sort of a flow state of making things better and better exponentially because I have this framework that I've laid out. So no, I don't regret it. I, I know that I'm more exhausted than I might have been but I love my work and I'm happy. That's not necessarily the answer you were looking for. I love that answer. Okay. I really, I really do love that answer. And I, just to wrap things up um, with this interview is I just really want to thank you for your wisdom and sharing your time with us. It's, it's definitely been a real experience and I'm, I'm very grateful to um, have had the chance to interview you. Um, can you tell our listeners where they can find you? Of course. So again, my clinic is Sacred Vessel Natural Medicine or the Equi Institute if it's 2019 or beyond. And our clinic number, which should not change, is 503-459-2584. You can also reach me by email at Dr. Angela, which is dr. Period Angela, at equiinstitute.com. Dot org, which is equi, E-Q-U-I, dash, institute, dot org. Feel free to reach out. I am more than happy 
to offer my information and insight if I can help you with patient cases, if I can help you find your way in, in offering trans care or any number of the other aspects of what I've spoken about, please do reach out. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Practice Sessions. If you enjoyed the interview, please make sure to subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review. For show notes and more information, visit our website at www.thepracticesessionspodcast.com.